electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Mega cap tech is the market, at least in terms of the gains this year. But there's a bifurcation happening in the space, and it's sending a big market signal. We'll tell you what it is, where to be in tech, and in this market because of it. Then there's big oil. Exxon and Chevron out with earnings as crude tries to avoid its worst monthly losing streak in eight years. But one of our guests says bigger isn't better in the energy trade. He brings the names he likes right now. Bigger is better, though, when it comes to healthcare. apparently. We're not just talking about the big names, but the big trend everyone is watching and how to capitalize on it now. Before all of that, though, let's get to some big rallies in the markets once again today. After yesterday's pretty big move, the Dow is up 241 points today. Exact same percentage gain as the S&P right now, which is up to 41.64, about three quarters of one percent. The Nasdaq lagging somewhat today. Interestingly enough, maybe pins uh, uh, Snapchat have something to do with that. Half a percent for the Nasdaq, just under 12,200. Let's look at shares of First Republic, the biggest drag on the S&P, dropping 50 percent before being halted today, uh, back up about to nearly $4 a share. Sources telling our David Faber the bank is most likely headed for FDIC receivership. We'll have more on this situation in just a moment. Elsewhere, a sigh of relief for office real estate, Vornado, Boston Properties, SL Green, all in the green today. Modest, but still no worthy, especially with Vornado on deck with earnings next week. Now, the most striking feature of this market year to date has been the outperformance of tech relative to everybody else. But not everything within tech is working either. Smaller names, younger ones like Snap and Pinterest plunging today while mega cap Meta continues to soar. And this is a very telling divergence to my next guest. Joining me is Oswald Demoter and professor of finance at NYU Stern School of Business and Chris Zenek, Wolf Research Chief Investment Strategist. Great to have you both along. Oswald, tell me how you read uh, the tea leaves right now. No, 2022 was a year where risk capital went to the sidelines, and I, I don't think it's coming back. But at the same time, if you look at tech, the big money-making tech companies are the ones that are bringing the market back. And collectively, this just in the last four months, the, the top decile of tech companies, the largest tech companies are up $1.7 trillion. I mean, that's, that's pretty much the rise in the market. They lost $3.5 trillion last year, so it's not like they're back to where they were before the market started its downturn. But I think the comeback has been almost exclusively in money-making big tech companies. It's, this isn't a, a rally that's carrying all tech along with it. Right. And that is telling to you, Aswat, because you're simply looking for signs that you know, the, you know, the, the rally could be sustainable, and you're not seeing that yet, are you? No, and, and I think until we get some sense of direction on the inflation in the economy, you're not going to get a rally that is sustainable and broad-based. And I think we, we, we still have an incredible amount of uncertainty as to where inflation is going and how this economy is going to play out. Yeah, I, I'll circle back to it. I remember when we talked, I think, was it 
Was it Netflix or not Netflix? Because I know you bought most of the of Mama, as we now call them. Not Netflix. Everything else but Netflix. That's (laughs) everything but Netflix was the trade. All right, Chris, let me turn to you because obviously I've seen the work that you're doing as well, uh, trying to figure out kind of where the strength and and weakness is in this market. And it sounds like you largely agree about the narrowness of the leadership. Yeah. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, you know, there's seven stocks driving 80% of the gains. The overall narrowness of the breadth in the market to me is not an encouraging sign. You know, we have a situation where, you know, the market's focused on earnings over the next week and in the past week, but then it's going to shift back to the macro with the Fed meeting uh, and other inflation data coming up. And, you know, inflation's running hot and is sticky. And ultimately, we think the Fed's going to be higher uh, for longer. So the narrowness is, to me, not a good sign right. for, the, for the broader market. Where would you, I mean, Chris, if, if you had to then kind of rule out certain areas that you think are overvalued like tech, are there any that are fairly or even undervalued? So one of the things we've been focused on is earnings quality within tech. So one of the concerning uh, signs and signals to us within tech is they're laying folks off and some of the mega cap tech companies have been extending their depreciation schedules, which has boosted earnings, we think, 8 to 10%. Wow. Uh, most notably, Google, uh, or I should say Alphabet, uh, in this most recent quarter. So within tech, you know, given our defensive nature and bearishness of the overall market, we'd be in software-type names, large-cap names, like the Microsofts of the world that have posted strong results. But you got to be very careful. It's not going forward from here. I don't think it's just going to be by all big cap tech and, and, and make money. This is interesting. And earnings quality and concerns about it are, are really bubbling up this quarter. So, Chris, let me make sure people understand what you're saying. You say the quality of earnings is lowest at Alphabet among some of the mega cap tech and media names because they extended the depreciable life or server uh, and network equipment for a second time, shifting some expenses uh, about stock-based comps. So that is that the only company where you pick up on these concerns or do you think there's a, a larger problem here? And there's a larger problem. I mean, Alphabet it did it most recently, but the company started to do this uh, in 2020. Uh, Meta's done it three times. Uh, Microsoft's even done it. And we don't see it in other areas of the market, right? So you ask yourself, why now? It's not as if everyone's sitting around the table thinking about how long they should depreciate their server equipment when they have bigger uh, problems to deal with. So it, it's curious that, that you always ask yourself, why now? And the fact that they're doing it again, to me, is not an encouraging signal in the future business, you know, of, of the future fundamentals of business. Sure. Oswath, it reminds me of something Mike Darda highlighted uh, earlier this year as well, that we've had operating earnings from the S&P kind of 25 percent higher than reported earnings across the economy. And a situation that we often tend to see at turning points when the people are try- kind of like Wiley Coyote, you know, they're <laughs> trying to pretend like they're we're not going over a cliff here. There is a disconnect between what's happening in earnings and what what we're supposedly seeing in the economy, though we still don't see the tangible evidence that we're going to head into a recession. And I think you can see it even the aggregate earnings forecast for the index is there's almost been no dent in it over the last 18 months in spite of all of the talk of how the economy is heading towards a cliff. So either the analyst forecasting earnings are wrong or the macroeconomists are forecasting that the economy is weakening is wrong. But I think that uh, but but one thing to keep in mind with these big tech companies is even in as they report higher earnings, they're also being very clear that revenue growth is now down to single digits. These are not double digit growth companies anymore. And investors entering these companies have to enter them with open eyes. These are not high growth companies. The cash machines, for the most part, they make a lot of money. 
Their margins are solid. Now, we can debate how solid they are, but that's basically what's going to drive these companies, the capacity to maintain profits, not 10% growth a year. Are you selling your holdings in a mama, fang, a big tech, whatever you'd want to call it, Oswald? No, I think I'm going to hold on. I mean, look at the rest of the market. I don't see an obvious place for me to take my money and put it where I would feel just as secure. I think what I have going with these companies that I think will, will allow them to withstand whatever market downturn is coming is they have more pricing power than most of the consumer product companies that we traditionally think of as high pricing power companies. I mean, I'll pay more for my Apple phone. And I think that's that's something that I think is going to keep their earnings sustained, even if the economy does weaken and if inflation stays high. Yeah. And we don't have time to get into it. But guidance, obviously, Chris, another thing you mentioned, several different names, Darden, Carnival, Seagate, all issuing problematic uh, numbers on that front. Just another reason to, to sort of have this cautious position. I'll leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you both today. Really appreciate it. Oswald Motor and, and Chris Senek. We just got a flurry of reports out today about the failures of both SVB and Signature Bank, which went down, remember, the same weekend about a month ago. It comes as the fate of First Republic is hanging in the balance. Let's get breaking news out of the FDIC on Signature Bank. Leslie Picker with the headlines. Yeah, Leslie? Yeah, Kelly, these reports really do feel timely. Uh, FDIC, as you mentioned, out with its postmortem on Signature Bank, saying, quote, the root cause of the firm's failure was poor management. In a 63-page report, the FDIC says, quote, the bank could have been been more measured in its growth, implemented appropriate risk management practices, and been more responsive to the FDIC's supervisory concerns, and the FDIC could have been more forward-looking and forceful in its supervision. FDIC says Signature Bank was overly exposed to a concentrated group and large group of uninsured deposits, and that management did not appropriately manage liquidity risk amid high growth. Notably, the FDIC said Signature's management's uh, was not responsive enough to their supervisory concerns. They took some of the blame, but noted that the agency had resource challenges, not able to staff examination uh, an examination team to appropriately monitor the bank. That was particularly the case in New York, where there's greater competition from the private sector for jobs and a high cost of living, which made it difficult to attract staff, uh, in addition to the pandemic, which made it hard for them to bring uh, appropriate examiners here. Now, the report did stop shy of issuing regulatory recommendations here, as Chief Risk Officer Marshall Gentry said on a media call, that the purpose was meant instead to pinpoint the root cause of Signature's failure. Now, Signature was the third largest bank failure in U.S. history, with an estimated cost to the FDIC insurance fund of $2.5 billion. Kelly. You know, to say we didn't have enough people is a pretty, mm-hmm. uh, pretty, interesting uh, way of evaluating this, Leslie. Did they say anything about crypto specifically? Crypto in the report was mentioned, of course, as being kind of the... The, something that they should have been more aware of obviously contributed to the just massive growth that they saw. Um, and then the FDIC says that they weren't equipped to keep up essentially with that growth. It's something that we also heard from the Fed with regard to SVB, just this idea that uh, these firms were very fast growing. Regulators are, I guess, used to slower, sleepier firms to regulate. And so kind of the nature of their clientele, the nature of their customer base. Um, and then, of course, in a low interest rate environment where things were going go, go, go. Yeah. They just weren't set up to to handle that, especially in a resource challenge, a labor challenge environment. Fascinating. Thank you, Leslie. Leslie Picker, mm-hmm. as she mentioned, the Federal Reserve out with its report on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and they seem to be pointing the finger somewhat at themselves. Steve Leisman has the details now. Steve. 
Yeah, Kelly, a similar tenor to that FDIC report reported by, by Leslie on the Fed's uh, own report on the failure of Silicon Valley Bank takes aim directly at SVB's management and the Fed's own bank supervisors also suggests new regulations are going to be needed for midsize banks like SVB. Let's look at some of the causes. It says that SVB was a textbook case of mismanagement, according to Michael Barr, the Fed's vice chair of bank supervision. It says SVB failed to manage basic interest rate and liquidity risk, and the board of directors failed to oversee senior leadership. On the Fed's misstep, supervisors failed to take enough forceful action. They missed risk created by SVB's really meteoric growth. Uh, the bank failed before SVB could be downgraded, even though they were talking about a downgrade back in November before the March 23 failure. SVB demonstrated weaknesses in regulation and supervision, and those standards for SVB were too low, according to the report. Uh, Michael Barr, the, uh, the vice chair for supervision, saying, we need to develop a culture that empowers supervisors to act in the face of uncertainty. In the case of SVB, supervisors delayed action to gather more evidence even as weaknesses were clear and growing. Uh, one other interesting thing, it does point out that the Fed's going to have to figure out how to put liquidity in the right place to respond to a world where you get social media technology and that concentrated depositor base. They're saying it fundamentally changed the speed of bank runs. And bottom line on mid-sized banks for investors, the report makes clear the re relaxations to regulatory standards of 2019 are now going to be looked at and probably rolled back, Kelly. Yeah, that's probably the most significant aspect of this. But it's also, you know, it's kind of a problem as old as time about empowering regulators. I mean, how often have we heard that when these postmortems come out? They're like, well, people were there, but, you know, they weren't really empowered to do anything about it. I know you want to talk about the inflation data points, too, though, Steve. <laughs> I want to talk about that as well. I mean, you're right. I mean, you could say that I, I'll get to the inflation in a second, but I want to respond. You could say everything was there. You don't need new rules. You just need right. people to step up and get rid of what is really a Byzantine uh, supervisory system that involves people in the bank in um, San Francisco. You have committees of supervisors. You got people in the bank in, 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 the, in the board in Washington. So it's very difficult. Real quick, uh, uh, Kelly, on the employment cost index, that was the thing I think that Powell was most likely looking at. It's the thing he cares a lot about. It actually went up. Uh, the price index month on month uh, was, was down in the headline. But it was pretty much unchanged on the core. You did get some movement on the year over year, but not a lot. It's still 4.6 there going to the bottom. Uh, take a quick look at this uh, preferred indicator that Powell has here, this um, core services X housing. Uh, it is down, but it's been kind of in a, you know, a range there of 4.75, call it, uh, to, to 5 or 6 on the top there. So it's down, uh, but it's still above the December level. I'll leave it there, Kelly, except to say that uh, um, uh, consumer spending was a big goose egg. And yeah. that's yeah. maybe more in line with what the Fed's trying to figure out here and get down to, to the uh, situation. There, Steve, stay with us, if you will. There is a lot to unpack here. And my next guest says the Fed's monetary yeah. policy missteps are what ultimately precipitated the banking mess that we're now in. Joining me here on set is Vahan Janjigian. He's chief investment officer at Greenwich Wealth Management. Thanks for your time today. It's great to Thank see you. you. So let's just kind of start with the banking mess because the fate of First Republic hangs in the balance. Um, when you hear these reports and know that 
that in the case of Signature, the FDIC says, well, we had job openings we couldn't fill, basically. Uh, the Fed, when it comes to SVB, says, well, there were people in place, but they just needed to be empowered to do something more about it. And the result of this is probably going to be more regulation for some probably well-managed banks who think, you know, what did we do to deserve this? But did the Fed say that the real cause of all this was higher interest rates? <laughs> um, the Fed kept interest rates so low for so long that a lot of these banks were basically reaching for yield. They were buying long-term treasuries. They were lending um, money for mortgages at very, very low rates just to earn some money. And then the Fed started raising rates. And they started raising rates very aggressively. In my opinion, they've already gone too high. Yeah. But um, I think this is what really caused the banking crisis. Now we, you have people pulling money out of the regional banks to go into the big banks. I'm afraid that one day we're going to end up with only a handful of right. big banks in this country. And on top of that, people are pulling money out just to go into Treasury securities. Yourself being one of your yes. part of the problem here, right? We, <laughs> we all have we talked about T-bill and chill. That was the joke for a few months until it basically took down the banking system, right? And the irony is it's high-yielding U.S. government securities that are causing this deposit hole and a funding problem for a lot of these banks. Yeah, the, the, the Fed has caused the crisis by raising interest rates. But on the other hand, they've given us a great place to park money in very safe securities for some period of time and earn a great rate of return. So, uh, you know, I, I would like to see the Fed take a little bit more responsibility for causing the banking crisis. I just wanted to give Steve a, a final word on this, Vahan, before, uh, Steve, we let you go. I mean, and we are going to hear from Fed Chair Powell himself next week. This will be the first meeting that they've actually had time to digest the failures that were kind of happening in real time at the last meeting. Yeah, I mean, uh, Vahan, I, I guess you could, you could have it both ways. I mean, in the sense that, yeah, the Fed uh, kept rates low and then it hiked really quickly. But, you know, what's the banking, uh, what are the senior executives at the bank bringing home all that money for? Because yeah. they're supposed to be able to sit there and collect a paycheck and take no responsibility. The world changes. The world changes every day. Banks are, are, is not a guaranteed business. It's not supposed to be, uh, you know, a government business where you guarantee you get your money back. So, I mean, I, I, I don't see letting the Fed off the hook on this. I think they should have done not... I don't think they should have not raised interest rates. I think they should have done a better job of the monetary policy part of the uh, Fed communicating with the supervisory part of the Fed saying, hey, we're hiking rates. You guys better double down on checking on interest rate risk. But I don't think you should let the banks off the hook. I think the Fed report is right in the sense that they're the ones at fault. They take home big paychecks. The board of directors have a responsibility. They get paid. They probably get shares. They shouldn't be left off the hook either. And Bahan, yeah, I yeah, thought you no, were going to cut. You're a value investor, right? I thought you were going to come out here and say <laughs> this is the whole point of why we look at management teams and differentiate between, you know, we don't just buy sectors and that kind of thing. So, yeah, please respond. No, I was going to say to Steve that I, I pretty much agree with what you're saying. I, I would not let the uh, bank managements off the hook. They do bear responsibility here, too. But uh, when, when you have a Fed that keeps interest rates at zero for so long and you're running a bank and you have to, you have to earn some money, you're, you're tempted very strongly, you're encouraged to go further out on that yield curve. And then you get caught in a situation like this. So, um, yes, the banks bear some responsibility, but I personally would put a bigger blame on the Fed. And, Vahan, let me just kind of pivot you and put this in context where when I say that you're buying T-bills, I mean, you literally think that's a better uh, option Right. As a as a money manager right now, then a lot of stocks are. Well, I have a big allocation to stocks. Sure. I mean, T-bills are a relatively small portion of, of our portfolios. But when it comes to new money, I am adding to to T-bills. Um, you know, I am also adding a little bit now to uh, to small cap stocks through ETFs because they've really lagged. 
And uh, I think that's a good opportunity right now. If you, if you just compare the QQQ, for example, to the IWM, I mean, it's a huge difference year to date. And most people look at that and say, well, more of a reason to get out of the market. But you're saying maybe actually it's time to sniff right now. Banks and energy, obviously, are a lot of the reasons why the Russell underperforms it lately. But I don't know if you feel comfortable with that exposure. Well, I don't feel comfortable with banks. I, I do have a very small exposure to, to banks. Um, as far as energy goes, that was a very large position for me, um, which I added a couple of years ago, primarily through the XLE. Um, more recently, I've been decreasing that allocation. Steve? Yeah, I want to ask Fahana a question because it, it seems like, you know, people come in and they say, well, I'm buying these six months, I'm buying these one-year T-bills. I've heard a case made for the 10-year as follows, which yeah. is that if you believe the Fed is eventually going to get it right and that inflation over the 10-year period is going to average 2%, that there's a pretty nice real return in that 10-year if you decide to go out and take that gamble. Where do you, where do you stand on that, Don? Yeah, I've heard that argument. Um, I'm not buying it because uh, if you're asking me uh, <laughs> what I'm going to do for the next 10 years, I'd rather be in stocks than to be in, uh, in treasuries. Um, I'm using treasuries right now more like a bank account. Uh, I think the one month to three right. month is a great place to park your money. Um, it's like having money in a savings account that you can take out at almost any time. And let's not forget, Vahan, we also had you here to preview the annual meeting Berkshire's holding this weekend. <laughs> um, you know, and if you look at Berkshire's own activity, I mean, where is it? It's energy, yeah. right? Like there's been not a lot else that, that they've done. Maybe that just speaks to the fact that everything, broadly speaking, still looks overvalued. I don't know. Yeah, they've been buying energy uh, very aggressively. Uh, of course, I used to be a big uh, Buffett follower. Um, used to be. <laughs> well, I wrote a book on Buffett many years ago. Uh, that, that was when I was a young man. <laughs> but um, yeah, energy is a big thing for, uh, for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I'm actually taking in the opposite of, the, of that point of view right now because energy had become such a large position in our portfolios. And so I'm, every time I see a strong rally, I'm trimming. It's still a good position, but I'm trimming. All right, Vahan, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. Steve, Thank thanks you. for sticking around as well. Vahan Janjigian with Greenwich Wealth Management and, of course, our own Steve Leisman. Still ahead, oil prices are hoping to avoid their longest monthly losing streak in eight years. But last year's bear, City's global head of commodities, Ed Morse, now says we could be nearing a bottom. Are oil execs seeing the same? We'll dig into that next. Plus, Apple on deck with results next week. Can it match what most of big tech already reported or not? And as we had to break, let's get a quick glance at the markets where the Russells today are outperforming up 1%. The Dow and the S&P up two-thirds of a percent. Uh, the 10-year note, by the way, 345 uh, if you're interested. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Crude is up 2% today, which could be significant, pushing us into the green for the month, which means we could snap a five-month losing streak. An energy turnaround might be underway, but will prices keep rising? Here's what ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods has to say. If you want to kind of gauge where prices are going, you've got to gauge where inventories are at. Uh, we're coming out of a period of uh, fairly low demand. Supply has been um, uh, consistent. And so you've built inventories and that keeps, I think, stability in the marketplace, which frankly, I think is a good thing. I think the industry could be very successful at the prices that we see today. Well, both Exxon and Chevron beat on earnings this morning. But my next guest says it's the smaller companies that could prove to be the better buy. With us is Neil Dingman. He's managing director of energy research at Truist. Good to see you, Neil. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. What are you most excited about in the space right now? I mean, we do have Obviously, a, a tough six-month, five-six-month uh, losing stretch, at least for the crude. But what do you think of the stock's performance? I mean, the stock's what's so unique is, unlike years ago, these stocks are kicking off so much free cash flow that the shareholder return that they're giving to investors is, is incredible. It's not, it's not the record levels it was last year. But, I mean, a number of my names, I mean, even, even Exxon and Chevron are paying uh, almost 10% free cash flow yields and paying out almost half of that to investors and then, as you mentioned, some of my smaller companies have free cash flow yields nearing 20 percent and are paying out 70, 80 percent of that free wow. cash flow. That's can you name some names to give us an example of uh, of which ones you're talking about? Sure. I mean, you look and still pretty good size. I mean, I look at like pure Permian Diamondback uh, Energy. You've had uh, Travis and those guys on before. Uh, just a tremendous company. They're paying back 70, 80 percent of their free cash flow. A little bit smaller also in the Permian called Permian Resources, symbol PR. Uh, they're doing a tremendous job. Even ConocoPhillips, um, you know, is, 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 has over a 10% free cash flow yield. So, you know, what's unique is just uh, two or three or four years ago, this was a, an industry that was just continuing to try to grow, was outspending. And I don't think that's ever going to be the case anymore. Right, exactly. So does that make you equally bullish on you know, the likes of Chevron, Exxon, and what about the potential for consolidation? I mean, is that a move that you'd like to see here that you think we could see more of? I, I think it's a move that we're going to have to see. I think, as Darren Woods had pointed out and others have pointed out, the lack of inventory out there is going to force these companies to either merge with others or continue to buy privates or continue to do deals to continue to add to that inventory that they have. Because remember, if it, any EMP that sits still their decline is about 30, 25 to 30% a year. So even if you're sitting still, you're going to lose about a quarter of your inventory. So you're always on the lookout for more inventory. That's pretty incredible. So basically, in order to just meet our basic needs for energy, they have to keep acquiring smaller players. Is that right? That's right. I mean, most of them right now still have, fortunately, like a Diamondback has close to 10 years inventory. But every time you use another year of that, you're going to have to keep replenishing that. So you're exactly right, Kelly. It, it's just this treadmill that even though they have great organic growth, they're going to have to continue to look for ways, either through merger of equals, maybe buying privates, maybe trying to buy publics, whatever it might be. But that's going to be a continuous cycle that I don't think changes. What happens if the administration, as it has been its want lately, says no consolidation? That, that, that does. I mean, we've seen it, you know, with EQT, uh, a pushback on a, on a deal that they still haven't closed uh, in the gas industry. 
So that does make challenges. I, you know, I don't think you would see that if you go if some of these public companies are just trying to buy private assets. Hmm. Uh, although in the case EQT, that is the case. But larger deals, larger merger of equals might be more difficult, I think. But the smaller just buying some assets might be a little bit easier to run by the administration. And I guess just to follow the logic real quick before we go, if they don't allow those deals, then does that mean the the crude price is at risk of spiking even higher in the future? I mean, if we don't bring enough inventory online? Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly what it means, that these companies are going to have to keep drilling their lesser and lesser quality inventory that, again, is only, you know, again, people ask how much inventory is out there. At $100 oil, there's plenty of inventory. At $50 oil, there's not a lot. So you're exactly right. Uh, you know, the the less of these deals we see out there, uh, just the, the, the larger chance we see for prices to go higher and higher. Oh, food for thought, so to speak. Neil, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Neil Dingman of Truist. Coming up, crypto is dead in America. That was the declaration this week from former Bitcoin bull Chamath Palihapitiya. If he's right, then why are so many people down in Texas for the world's largest crypto gathering? We'll go there live next with regulation, the word on everybody's minds. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, as the strength we saw in the rally yesterday is really continuing today as we close things out into the weekend. Dow and S&P up three quarters of a percent. Now that's 250 points for the Dow. NASDAQ lagging a little bit, still adding half of one percent. We mentioned First Republic's big drop today, but want to check on the other regionals. It's a better picture, and these are earnings names as well. So we're seeing gains 14 percent for New York Community Bank. Uh, we've got 13, 11 percent for Axos. Valley National, local bank here in New Jersey, up four percent. Citizens up three percent. They're the only one who weren't uh, in earnings as you can see, again, the market rewarding a little bit of a sigh of relief there for those outside of the hardest hit names right now. Elsewhere, the Invesco Solar ETF is on track for its worst week since September. Incredible post-earnings sell-off for a lot of these names. It's another 1% drop today, down 8% this week. We all know what happened with Enphase earlier on. Now it's first solar. Here's a look back at the declines. Enphase down 27% this week. First solar, 18%. Solar Edge down 11%. First solar having its worst week in a decade. On that note, let's get to Tyler Matheson for the CNBC News Update. Tyler? On that cheery note, Kelly, thank you very much. And here, folks, is your news update at this hour. Two U.S. Army helicopters crashed on Thursday night in Alaska. Three soldiers dead. Injured was a fourth. This marks the second accident involving military helicopters in Alaska this year. The Army released a statement saying the cause of the crash is under investigation and more details will be released as they become available. Pope Francis is in Hungary today as part of a three-day pastoral visit. This is the Pope's first full trip to the country since he became Pope 10 years ago. And it's also his first trip since he was hospitalized for bronchitis back in March. The visit expected to include discussions of conflict in Ukraine as well as issues on migration. 
And cigarette smoking dropped to an all-time low last year. This according to the CDC. The data show only 11% of adults say they smoked cigarettes last year. That's down from 12.5% in 2021. However, e-cigarette usage rose to nearly 6% from about 4.5% the year before. Kelly, back to you. I mean, I shouldn't go there, but 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 pot smoking's up. You wonder if you pulled smoking of something overall, if it would still be down. Yeah. I don't think any of it's really good. I don't think anything going into your lungs that shouldn't be there. Not, a, not great. Good for no. I'll see you next hour, Tyler. See Thanks. You. Coming up, why are we seeing such divergent trends in digital advertising? We've got that plus Amazon's warning on the cloud and a look ahead to Apple's report next week. It's all coming up next in Earnings Exchange. I mean, the exchange. Earnings are back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We did a word cloud of the most mentioned terms this week from mega cap tech. Now, number one, it wasn't actually AI. It was think. Well, that kind of makes sense. Or maybe people are too uncertain. But anyway, it was mentioned 199 times. So if you don't count that, then yes, AI was the most mentioned item said 170 times. Then cloud, 86 mentions. And after that, ads with 43 discussions. Let's figure out what that means, especially with Apple on deck next week. Joining me now are James Chuckmuck at Clockwise Capital, Brent Phillip Jeffries with a buy rating on Amazon, and our very own CNBC tech correspondent, Steve Kovac. Welcome to everybody. James, I was all excited when Amazon was up 11 percent I was going to email you and be like, this is a huge yeah. win, 50. And then it all turned around because they said April's week on the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> you hit the nail on the head, uh, Kelly. I mean, basically, I think the, the guidance was a head fake. You had better than expected numbers looking out to 2Q. But the question was, where was that growth and outperformance coming from? And unfortunately, we learned on the call it was coming from every other aspect of their business and not so much AWS. Now, that would normally be a good thing to see the retail business, physical stores, uh, advertising, membership, all these moving in the right direction. But AWS, unfortunately, is a myopic focus on the, on the part of uh, most investors. And when we, talk, when we heard that 500 basis point deceleration in April, you know, that begs the question, what does that look, look like for the rest of the year? So I think the stock should be more around flat. I think that would be more fair. But at the end of the day, you know, this is something that the company will be able to work through over the next couple of quarters and, and growth should resume. So, you know, we're not that worried short term. Uh, we're not that very long term, but short term, obviously, um, you know, taking a little bit of pain. Yeah. I mean, Steve, I think James makes a great point that normally people would say, hey, it's great. This business is showing other sources of strength. Right. It's not just the cloud, but that's not uh, the mood today. Yeah, and especially because Microsoft reported two or three days before that and showed great strength in the cloud, not to mention specifically in AI. We talked about the number of AI mentions we got. I think Amazon only had like 12 or 13 mentions of AI. So it, the perception at least is Microsoft is more poised to sell AI as a product for cloud and therefore take away some market share. Did Microsoft mention April trends on the cloud? They, specifically? Not, not, not super specifically. I can't recall if they talked only about April, but look, there was just more optimism there because they said, look, in, in addition to doing exactly what Amazon's doing, helping people, they call it optimized, which really means spend less. <laughs> and in order to keep those customers, Microsoft's doing that too. But hmm. again, they have extra stuff to sell their customers to layer on top of that. And it's all AI products. Amazon can't necessarily do that. And Brent, I wanted to turn to you and kind of bring up a point that Chris Senek made earlier this hour, where he flagged earnings quality, called out Google, but also called out some of the other mega cap tech companies and said he doesn't like the way that they're achieving these beats. Do you think there's some fairness to what that, you know, to, to how they're making the numbers each quarter? Um, does that worry you at all about the sustainability of their kind of core growth? 
I don't think there was anything too concerning. I think what we have is a sector rotation back to mega cap away from small and mid, and you have money moving out of banking, money moving out of energy. You have a complete sector reallocation that's pushed this group higher. Uh, everything's slowing. All the mega clouds showed 400 basis points of decel. Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they're all decelerating. So I think what's happening is we're seeing decelerating IT spend. Stocks are, are going higher because expectations were just so bad. They were so negative. And ultimately, I don't think we're out of the uh, out of uh, danger here in terms of IT spend. We're seeing a lot of companies like Cloudflare and True. what Amazon said about the trends, you know, reversing. So I think this has more to do with the allocation and expectation going in than how they're reporting. They're all slowing, right? And that that is the concern. How, how long is this slowdown going to going to be? Is it the rest of twenty three? Is it going to last into twenty four? I think that's that's the bigger debate we're having with and our clients right it's now. It's ironic that all the recession and hard landing concerns are helping them out. If we all thought we were going to have a great growth year, we'd say, well, rotate out of tech. Their growth is slowing. Everything else, you know, go into Caterpillar. But at a time when we're like, we could be a negative GDP in a couple quarters, they'll say, Brent, don't you think I'll still take 3% or 5% growth uh, in big tech? Absolutely. And they'll take the pricing power of AI. And, True. you know, when you look at the pricing power that Microsoft has, for example, it's incredible. I mean, they're they're charging 50 to 100 percent more for equivalent products with the AI features embedded. Hmm. I mean, the pricing power is way higher than we all thought. And, and I think we're going to see more pricing come out here short term. But the, the advancements are incredible. And that gives investors at least a product catalyst and some pricing uh, to, to protect themselves in the short term. When, James, do you think the cloud will be out of the woods, so to speak? I think we have two more quarters of challenges uh, because things didn't really start to slow down until the fourth quarter of last year. So, you know, this could be pronounced at least for another uh, six months. But I think when you kind of put into context AWS versus the other big cloud providers, you know, the other cloud providers are predominantly, you know, Fortune 500 companies. So AWS actually casts a much wider net when it comes to the customers they serve. So unfortunately, that it makes them a little bit more prone uh, to cyclicality. But to Brent's point earlier, you know, the expectations were so low. I'm a guy that can, that can normally look through the noise. And even I was like, are things really this bad? Hmm. Um, and I don't normally ask that question. So the bar, the bar was low. And I think, you know, even coming out of this quarter, the bar continues to be um, largely low uh, relative to where they can perform. So, you know, we think that the next couple quarters could be choppy, but coming out of 4Q, um, I think that the comps will get easier and, um, you know, AWS can reaccelerate uh, as well as um, the other cloud providers. Steve, quick last word for those who want to do work this weekend on Apple. <laughs> yes. And say, what are the takeaways or any read-throughs from the, what we learned this week? What would you say? Yeah, it's, it's a different story with Apple, actually, yeah. where we're seeing modest to low growth. It's going to be no growth for Apple. In fact, it's likely going to have its second down quarter in a row, probably a down year for Apple. And that's just hardware demand is just evaporating. The real question, the, the caveat to that would be China. China reopened. That means more production. And that also means more potential sales. So how did China look for Apple during that reopening? Are they able to kind of carry over that missed iPhone sales from the holiday quarter? How much of that carried over? How much of that is attributable to China? How much of that is people saying, you know, we might be heading for a recession later this year, but I'm going to buy my new iPhone anyway that I didn't get in time for Christmas. Right. That's the big one. A totally different set of issues. Maybe a good thing, depending yeah. on how you Foreign look at it. exchange getting better, too. Right. Exactly. That's Guys, one. thank you all very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, James Chuckmuck, Brent Thill, Steve Kovac. Thank you. Still coming up here on The Exchange, the annual Coindesk Consensus Conference. It wraps up today with regulation, the hot button issue this year. We'll go live to Austin for what crypto execs 
regulators alike had to say about that after this quick break. Welcome back, everybody. Bitcoin up more than 6% this week, down a little today. And even though Chamath Palihapitiya says crypto is dead in America, one of the biggest crypto events of the year, the Coindesk Consensus Conference is wrapping up in Austin, Texas today. Our very own tech reporter, Mackenzie Sigalos, is there. She's been speaking with some of the biggest names in the industry. Mac, it's good to see you. And what are you hearing? Hey, Kelly, good to see you, too. I've been speaking with crypto CEOs, federal regulators, NVCs who are heavily invested in the sector. And the number one topic of conversation here in Texas is regulation of digital assets in the U.S. You've got this major legal battle brewing between Coinbase and the SEC. And people here feel that the outcome will really set the tone for whether the crypto industry can continue to operate in the U.S. Now, just in the last few days, this fight between Coinbase and the SEC has escalated. Coinbase sued the regulator on Monday. And then yesterday, the crypto exchange publicly shared its response to the Wells notice that it got from regulators. But Chair Gensler, who, remember, was grilled by House lawmakers just last week for his regulation by enforcement approach to crypto is sticking to his talking points just yesterday. Now, I caught up with Coinbase's chief legal officer, Paul Garal, here at Consensus on Thursday, just moments after the company released its response to the SEC, and we got into the topic of potentially moving operations offshore. When you run an international business like ours, even today, uh, roughly 20% of our revenue comes from outside the United States. You know, as we continue to um, you know, consider where our greatest opportunities lie to uh, bring crypto uh, to not just uh, hundreds of millions of people, but potentially billions of people uh, all over the world, we have to think about what opportunities may exist for us in other markets outside of the United States where the regulatory climate is uh, more balanced and where governments have recognized that crypto is here to stay. Yep. He also pointed out, Kelly, that Coinbase had met with the SEC more than 30 times in the last year and that the regulator had failed to raise concerns over its business model before it went public in April of 2021. Yeah, I mean, obviously their their lawsuit is a, a whole other level here. Do you think Coinbase winds up offshore, Mac? I mean, the company's chief legal officer thinks it's likely that Coinbase will at least face a lengthy legal battle with the regulators. So it'll be a while till we know how this legal showdown shakes out. But increasingly, the question is becoming more about whether Coinbase decides to make a voluntary exit. The CEO already said they're ready to leave the U.S. if this all goes south. It's also worth noting that Coinbase's stock is down around 9% since the SEC uh, lawsuit on Monday, since Coinbase sued the SEC. I also caught up with the CEO Circle, and that company issues the U.S. dollar peg stablecoin USDC, and he made the point that they're going to jurisdictions where there's regulatory clarity, the U.K., the European Union, the UAE. And in fact, a lot of CEOs I've been speaking to have been really buzzing about the U.K. as an ideal place to be based, and not because they're soft on regulation. They actually have very strict standards, but they have capable regulators who recognize the importance of clear rules, and that matters a lot to these firms. All right, Mackenzie, thank you. Mackenzie Sigalos reporting in Austin. Still ahead, maybe you've heard of it now. Ozempic, WeGovy, and Mounjaro, the weight loss drugs, perhaps the biggest new pharma opportunity in decades. We'll tell you where the street sees big gains and which new entrance you should watch coming up next on The Exchange.
Welcome back. Well, tech steals the spotlight. Some key healthcare names also reported this week. Merck and Amgen had beats. Eli Lilly missed on earnings, but beat on revenues. And Lilly, not just out with quarterly results. Yesterday, they released findings of a key trial of its diabetes and some say weight loss drug, Mount Jaro. If you're keyed into pop culture at all, you've heard that name bandied about with the likes of Ozempic and Wegovy. But it's not yet FDA approved for actually treating obesity like those other two are. Lilly says it'll be finalizing its application for approval. And my next guest says the market for weight loss drugs is just getting started. Started. Here to discuss is Jared Holtz, healthcare equity strategist at Mizuho. Good to see you, Jared. You called it Obesity Thursday. Why was it such a big deal? Kelly, hey, how are you? Uh, yeah, just getting the incremental data from Lilly and seeing some of the numbers. I mean, we're, we're basically just at the precipice of this market taking off. And obviously, a lot of investors have been talking about obesity for a, quite a while now, at least over a year. But we're just scratching the surface in terms of revenue. And like you mentioned, Manjaro has not even been approved for obesity. So we're not going to see the results uh, from a sales standpoint until next year. So we're just getting going, basically. Yeah, kind of like AI. I mean, it's just getting going. And yet you can argue it's already priced into a lot of the valuation of Microsoft relative to others. Uh, is weight loss already priced into shares of Lilly and the others? Well, certainly a lot. I mean, it, it's very tough to know exactly what the weight loss drugs are as a component of the, of the valuation, but Lilly and Novo are both getting close to 400 billion in market cap, which is almost double any other peer. So it's probably in the ballpark of 50 to 100 billion for each company in terms of what these drugs are worth. And you know, so arguably they're going to have to grow into the valuation. We'll see how the numbers ramp up. You know, it seems like they're going to be massive. Um, but obviously, there's a lot baked in here, yes. Yeah, I mean, the, these facts are incredible. If approved, Mountjaro could become the best-selling drug of all time. I think this is from B of A. Uh, sales, sales could hit $48 billion. I mean, the record is held by Humira, which AbbVie is AbbVie's rheumatoid arthritis drug. That was $20 billion. Just unbelievable. We go V, just to take another uh, factoid here, $1,300 a month. And obviously those with the means who want to lose weight are willing to pony up for it. How big of an impact are these drugs going to have once they're brought? And, and would you say they are already broadly available or have we not reached that point yet? They're not broadly available because it's still not that easy to get a prescription. I mean, we, we are seeing them being written. Manjaro um, really should take off next year. We has done pretty well out of the gate. Um, some would argue very well. Um, it's still really, you know, I would argue almost a, uh, a vanity drug at this point versus a therapeutic from the numbers that we've seen. Not really sure that the people that are really most suited for the drugs are actually getting them. That would be the, the obese population by definition. Um, but we'll have to see. I mean, if these numbers are right, it's going to be a little bit of a balancing act or a, a delicate situation for the companies, because at some point someone's going to have to pay for all these drugs and $48 billion is a monster number. Yeah. It just seems like at some point the payers are going to, you know, obviously be impacted. Or they just become the whole market. I mean, we all know that obesity is a risk factor for so many other conditions that are already being medicated. If those go away, then maybe this supplants that. What's the difference between these three different leading ones on the market right now? And is anything else in the pipeline? Well, Wegovy is essentially a reformulated Ozempic. And, and Manjaro and, and Wegovy are, are fairly similar. The differences are nuanced. The data has been a little bit better from Manjaro, from Lilly, from what we can tell, um, but it's still a little bit early and, and not enough time has gone by. They're probably more similar than different. You know, those two are going to have a duopoly for a while. Um, you know, I would give the edge to Lilly, but it's going to be close. Some of it could come down to distribution and pricing and other things of that nature, logistics, et cetera. And then Amgen and Pfizer are kind of in the wings. They're kind of they're waiting 
and they're going to have more data as the years progress, but they're probably three or four years behind. And then Viking Therapeutics, um, which is a small cap biotech play, has had interesting data lately, but they're also, you know, very immature versus Lilly and Novo. But it will get more competitive for the next few years. It's probably a two player market. But, you know, obviously with the valuation or the value that's been created, by just these first two companies, everyone wants a piece, I would think. Oh, it's incredible. Between that and what's happening on the Alzheimer's front, this is kind of the busiest period all of a sudden in pharma in quite some time. Jared, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. Jared Holtz with Oppenheimer. That does it for The Exchange, everybody, but don't go anywhere. Tyler's getting ready for a very busy hour of Power Lunch. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.